Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, a covert Nazi organisation promoting the evil that is the EU Fourth Reich, according to Twitter user Mike Williams. I'm Dorian Linsky and I've got two of our regular presenters with me in the snow-covered Romaniacs bunker. Naomi Smith is Campaigns Director at the Pressure Group London First. She stood for Parliament as a Lib Dem and on Friday night our producer Andrew spotted her on her way to a drag show in Dalston. How much Politan elite is that? Hi, Naomi. How are you? I'm good. Um, so I was going down the escalators with my friends in the tube station and suddenly just heard, Naomi! And I looked over and I looked back at my friends and I said, since Romaniacs has been shortlisted for the Press Guild podcast of the year, the cast just get this wherever we go, just like fans hollering at us. They fell for it for about five seconds before I said that. So producer. But yeah, Drag Night in Dawson is about as metropolitan elite as it can get. And my friend Nigel, who's awesome, and we should probably get him on the uh, on the show because he just is excellent on all things Brexit. He commented that it really felt like the last days of the Weimar Republic at the night in you know uh, early, early 30s Berlin. There was a real sense that the fun police are probably going to crash down on this sort of thing once we properly Brexit. Wow, that must have taken the, <laughs> taken the edge <laughs> off the fun a little. No, Just I'm... pretend the Nazis are coming. Yeah, true. Yeah. The Nazis Bit are always down. coming. Also with us this week, we have Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, and that exasperated man you keep seeing on TV talking to Julia Hartley Brewer and Melanie Phillips, who are better secretly your friends. Oh, one of them is. <laughs> <laughs> you, have to guess, secret, you have yeah. to guess which one, really. Um, have you recovered from last week's Romaniacs Live? Yes, that was fun, I thought. That was really uh, that was really good. Our audience are unsurprisingly rather lovely, but um, yeah, that was thoroughly enjoyable. And they actually laugh when you want them to laugh, <laughs> which, I mean, I don't know how... I don't know how you Has know, that ever happened to you before? <laughs> well, I've bit. done book festivals where you try and lighten... You know, I'm often like talking about protest songs or whatever, but there's some humour to be had, and you just throw in early on like an obvious kind of laugh line, a funny anecdote or quote or something. And then they just sit there because there's a certain kind of person you get at book festivals. Mm. Often they just sort of old people with like a season pass and they just come to everything and then they just sort of sit there. And uh, last week, first funny line that came up, hoots of laughter. And then you're then you're away. And now I understand that old cliche that bands always say about, hey, man, it's not us. It's the it's the audience. Okay. And I go, yeah, it's mainly you, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but the no, trick is also, I mean, give the them alcohol, I think. So, I mean, that seems to play a key role in all of these things. As long as you just sort of feed people beer, they tend to be more receptive. Well, I, I was sat have. in the audience, and I can tell you, you're very, very good. Um, I think there was an audience laugh about once every 20 seconds. It was it, it was superb. Well done, guys. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. And Naomi has no vested interest in this at all. <laughs> She's entirely <laughs> partial observer, just we pulled off the street. <laughs> We've had some really good um, feedback, though, from people that came along. They've emailed us some really lovely feedback to say, you know, what a great job everybody did. So well done. Also some practical seating suggestions. Indeed. Mm. Today's special guest is Helen Lewis. She's deputy editor of The New Statesman and hosts the magazine's weekly podcast with Stephen Bush. She regularly appears on The Sunday Politics, The Week in Westminster and The News Quiz. And she's a video games addict with a fondness for Bioshock, Civilization, and Fallout 4. <laughs> <laughs> All of which, as we said, like everything else, are metaphors for Brexit. Hi, Helen. Welcome to Romaniacs. Hello. Very nice to um, be here. And I have to say, your uh, podcast bunker is a lot nicer than our podcast bunker. So, you know, I'm, I feel jealous of it, your That's setup. because it's winter. In the summer, it just becomes tremendously hot in here and we sort of sweat our way through it. So you're you're basically the prime moment in the year to be in our podcast bunker. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I, do, I haven't played any video games lately. I just find them quite... Um, Actually, as a metaphor for Brexit, they really stopped innovating and actually they just they seem to just be making the same game over and over again. 
Much like our trade policy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Are they trying to go back to a golden age of video yeah, games? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, actually, they do. They, they literally did bring back Nazis. There was Castle Wolfenstein, and 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 it's really there's a really interesting thing about they're having a big problem with video games because obviously people tend to feel bad now about shooting a lot of the people that you used to be able to shoot in video games. So really, zombies and Nazis are like the favoured people that you can feel okay about shooting. So that's yeah, video mm. games are really majoring hard on those two enemies. Although classes. who knows the way Nazis are going, maybe. Maybe, maybe even they will be no-go areas. Oh, my God. They'll just be the zombies left. Yeah. We'll be talking more to Helen throughout the show and talking about the challenges of covering Brexit. Plus, Jeremy Corbyn finally comes out for A, not the, customs union with the EU. But is his version really that different from Boris Johnson's cakeism, except with a bit of red icing? And what happens if the EU says no? The Tories immediately go into high dudgeon mode about Corbyn's move. And for a change of pace, why are we so obsessed with Churchill? Gary Oldman is probably going to win the Best Actor Oscar for his fat-suited turn as the saviour of the nation in Darkest Hour, but is it time we stopped fangirling over Wicked Winston? All this and more after these announcements from Naomi. Our first Romaniacs Live last week was brilliant. We're already exploring our next shows and I even may be making my uh, live show debut too. Um, For those of you who worry that we're too Westminster bubble, have no fear. We're looking at dates outside of London too. Tickets sold out in just a few days, so the best way to ensure you get yours next time is to support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Pledge just a few pounds a month to pay the show's bills and you'll get early bird access to every round of Romaniacs Live tickets, plus very smart Romaniacs t-shirts, mugs and bags. It's the perfect way to own that Ramon. Find out more at Romaniacs.com or just search for Romaniacs Patreon. Thanks, Naomi. Now warm yourselves with a steaming hot slice of Brexit news pie. First up, Jeremy Corbyn's long-awaited conversion to the idea of Britain being in a permanent customs union with the EU after Brexit. Much trailed by Keir Starmer and Builders Seismic, the move would mean no need for a hard border with Northern Ireland. More on that later. But it stopped short of committing Labour to staying in the single market, which business and the Labour soft left have been clamouring for. Unsurprisingly, Liam Fox called it a complete sellout. And Boris Johnson on the Today programme called it a completely cynical, shameless (laughs) U-turn. which is the very definition of a bit fucking rich. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, it opens the door for Tory rebels to vote with Labour to derail hard Brexit and maybe even force a general election. Uh, Ian, this had fairly positive reactions, uh, which suggests that maybe it's it's more than positioning. What did you make of the speech? Uh, I don't know. And I'm quite happy to sort of say that I don't know. Um, There's sort of two camps now, I think, with the sort of Remain lot. On the one hand, you have the, look, he's a strategic genius. He's moving, but only insofar as he feels the public will move and he's gradually getting there. He'll go towards the final vote. He'll vote that down. He's ultimately either very Remaining or very soft Brexity. The other is, you know, he's just basically just sort of being pushed into these positions by a bit of chaos. He mostly wants to stay two steps towards Remain, this is what his cabinet secretaries occasionally tell journalists, two further steps towards Remain from where the government is. So he just says all that to placate, to keep them in the party, but ultimately he is still the same old Eurosceptic he always was. Seamus Milne is still dripping the same poison into his ear that he always was. So then the question is, you look at a speech like this and you think, well, which is it? And it's very, very hard to tell. And I don't really believe that anyone knows. I don't believe the columnists that write about this know. I certainly don't believe that I know. I don't really believe that I'm not sure that Keir Starmer's office really knows either. I think that they see where they get to push him to. They see the, the, the movement, but I'm not sure that they really know where his head is at. I'd say sort of a handful of people in his office really know the reality of it. And certainly I'm not one of them. 
I think he was really careful not to provide any clarity on anything at all. Um, you know, he didn't say whether he wants us to negotiate our trade deals or whether he just wants us to have a real say in them. He wasn't clear about whether he wanted exemptions or clarifications about state aid deals. And he wasn't really clear about um, ending freedom of movement either. So I think he was just continuing to want to tread this tightrope walk between the Lexiteers and the large majority of Remainers in his party. Helen, do you know what's going on inside his brain? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think Ian's right, actually, in the sense that I would probably bet that even he doesn't know what final position they will necessarily end up with. I think the thing that you have to remember, which has come out, our cover story this week is about the kind of new left establishment, and we were doing profiles of the people around him, and the thing that comes out when you see them all, so we talked about Carrie Murphy, his chief of staff, um, you know, Andrew Murray, uh, who's Unite from the Unite Union, who's on secondment a day and a half a week there. You know, Lem McCluskey, leader of Unite. You know, um, uh, I think John Landsman of Momentum. These are not, and there is, not, apart from Diane Abbott in his inner circle, there is not an ardent pro European to be found. Mm. There are people who take a kind of, well, we think Brexit is kind of have good and bad stuff, but we'll probably muddle through it. Right through the gamut of people to the EU is a neoliberal plot to impose capitalism on everybody. And yeah, that's more the kind of end that Seamus Milne, I think, um, you know, who's his director of strategy and communications ends up at, which is that you know things like the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, are there to basically rule in favour of big capitalists mm. against trade unions. Um, so they're really relaxed in in that office. And um, one of the things I thought was really notable last week was Corbyn saying, you know, uh, his kind of full throated attack on the press, saying, you know, we're going to we, these people who run these companies should be worried, you know, these foreign billionaires who mm. tax dodge or non doms or whatever. That is something that you probably couldn't do inside the EU. So they are excited about things. They're excited about what's happening in Preston about local procurement and about, as you were saying, about state aid rules, about the opportunities that are there. So I think he's intensely relaxed about leaving the European Union. But I think mostly that whole team, they want Brexit to be over so they can get on and do the stuff they want to do, which I think is the catastrophic error that they're making, that it will ever be over and that <laughs> after it is over, there will be the money left and the economy in a good state exactly, enough to, to do the doing things doing that they want to do with that left-wing programme. I think... All the indications are that if we pursue the kind of Brexit that Theresa May has been talking about, there's just going to be it's going to be a case of really scratching down the back of the sofa for whatever coppers you can find. And at that point, the idea of are you going to be able to find 11 billion for tuition fees becomes incredibly different. See, without raising taxes hugely or borrowing, which they are really trying not to commit themselves to. I think the most objectionable line in it was where he said, I appeal to MPs of all parties, be prepared to put the people's interests before ideological fantasies. And, I mean, that is pot calling the kettle black, frankly. You know, if ever I heard it, he treats the EU like this capitalist uh, club that subjugates the workers and, you know, doesn't treat it as the greatest peace project of all time. Well, so, and, and, the, and the Corbyn supporting tendency of the Labour Party treat the Tories like vermin, I mean, to use that Bevan quote. Uh, you know, they do really, that, you know, um, you know, I think Laura Pickock maybe was slightly overrated in the way it was reported when she said, you know, I wouldn't be friends with a Tory, which she said was, like, meant, was personal friends. But I still think to most people in the country, that is a slightly loony position. The idea that you might, that you think that somebody who is a member of or would vote for another political party is so despicable that you couldn't be friends with them. But there is absolutely something that is common currency among social media activists and, and Corbynite commentators, blogs like Squawkbox, that you that these are indivisible tribes. So how do you get from that position to Jeremy Corbyn saying, come join us Tories in the grand coalition mm. against Brexit and we will all skip into the sunset together when you've just spent saying, saying that they're killing disabled people. I mean, it's just impossible to reconcile those two ideas in your head. Oh, another thing he said which bothered me was when he talks about sort of funds returned from Brussels. Mm. 
which is sort of a version of the the, leave bus the bus. bus. Yeah. It's a lie. I mean, it's just a complete lie. And I think that's the problem. Is but you know, his office have been quite clear behind the scenes. I'm sure you've heard this as well. In that they are not against the idea of populism, right? They think there is a left wing populism, and to be had, and that's that's something that they can offer. Um, and the the kind of we'll release more money back for public services argument is one that was enormously popular during the referendum campaign, and is one that they would love very much to be true. I just don't think there you can find an economist who isn't Dulali who thinks that it is true. So this, I mean, this this is this is the thing where my natural instinct is he is just a Eurosceptic. He is just trying to pull us out because they want those simple solutions. We've discussed this several times before. But then there's these other little bits that you find these strange little moments where he's surprisingly precise about the things he's saying and the and the sort of goals that he sets himself. So what? Matthew Mulhouse the other day put out showed a little bit of transcript from something in January to the Andrew Marr program where he was talking about agency workers. Now, most of the time, when you boil down what Jeremy Corbyn says about freedom of movement, he's predominantly talking about agency workers. Not just, but predominantly talking about agency workers. Now, in that, he basically says, the reforms that the EU have already implemented under Emmanuel Macron, who most Simon Corbyn heights absolutely despise, but nevertheless has forced through these ones, have already been there, and we will be happy if they're enforced. So his own test... For, the bre- for him being satisfied, at least on the immigration front, seems to be mostly satisfied by policies that have already been adopted. You sort of get the same sort of feeling with various parts of his objections to the EU, that they're, they're actually quite low hurdles that he's setting. Where I think it's toughest is the state aid stuff. Because when you really get down to, you know, what are you going to do with provision of mail? There has to be competition in provision of mail services. Now, to me, that is not the ditch that I feel I need to die in on anything. But nevertheless, it clearly does sort of actually get really into the heart of where they are and what they want to do. But the point so about that is, why can't you renationalise the Royal Mail but it have competitors? And, you know, in the same way that you... I just, this is what I don't understand is why those two positions... Why nationalisation has to inevitably then mean state monopoly? Um, you know, why can't you do what, you know, the Adonis, Andrew Adonis's plan mm. before he went mad uh, about uh, renationalising... Great, great guest on the show, not yeah. mad. <laughs> <laughs> lovely man. He's a lovely so man, but I'm, I'm bre- like, I have a category, that informal category I keep in my head of, of, of Twitter, Twitter men driven mad by Brexit. <laughs> and, and I'm afraid he's, he's one of them. His Twitter persona is, is larger than life these days. But, um, but, you know, about the kind of having a state franchise bidding against private companies, mm. you know, those are kind of things that you can do. I don't know why you kind of to me that is absolutely at the end of where I think the conservatives are where they just believe privatization is good and even absent of the evidence right which indefinitely in the east coast mainline is not there at all you know the idea that no no no, you have to privatize stuff because we know privatization is better I don't see why on earth you would have to take the opposite extreme which is that nationalized industries have to operate in a particular way exactly and and they were all nationalized when we joined the EC back in there were well, some know. of the stuff has been passed later on, but it's like most most centre left governments have been pretty canny about this in Europe. And you're right, they have the bidding process, but then they set a basis upon which the bidding takes place for contracts that satisfies the goals that they are trying to achieve. Whether it is environmental, whether it is reinvestment in an area, whether it is something to do with workers' rights, you can control the framework by which the bidding process takes place, and that is how you secure progressive goals within the mandates that you have via state aid. It can be done. And any time that we're really getting into the thing of it absolutely has to be this one monolithic provider, we really are going back to the 1970s rather than having a more flexible, sort of interesting left-wing perspective on how we can do things. Yeah, and which is why some of the stuff that the soft left people in Labour are doing um, is about kind of cooperatives and things like that is actually genuinely interesting, I think, because it is... My criticism often of the Corbyn project has been that it is old solutions. And actually, I do think that his critique is right and that actually most people do feel that the way that the economy has been arranged does not work for them. 
and therefore they do, there do need to be solutions to that. I mean, something you know, Stella Creasy's been talking about, which is a trade union for freelancers and trade union for people in the gig economy, is absolutely the kind of thing we should be talking about on the on the left because workers' rights were bought at this incredible expense of fighting and only because you had campaigning organisations that had strong bonds between them for that work. But that's exactly the kind of thing that the gig economy is destroying. So you do need to think about that. Like You can't go back to the idea of let's just have really strong trade unions in the way that we used to where everybody signs up in their workplace because people don't have lots of people don't have a workplace anymore well it, there is that thing where so much of Corbyn is or so much of, of Jeremy Corbyn's brain is rooted in you know the 70s and 80s I, I, he's, he's not I mean there are people around him who are generating new ideas I, I, I never really know what what solutions he's coming up with that he didn't think were the right idea back in 1983 and, like he's but, but, he's just, not a kind of blue sky thinker. But I mean, I think as I've said this before in the on the podcast, Remainers need to get better at selling the EU to Corbyn. You've got Trump and you know going mad in America. You've got the ascendancy of China and the other side of the world. And in the middle, you've got this block, this large, large, large trading block that is actually crying out for some decent leadership. And as Helen mentioned earlier, if he inherits the throne after we've crashed out. Our economy will tank and it will be his brand of socialism that gets blamed rather than Brexit mm. in and of itself. Whereas if he was to change his position now, he could provide that leadership in Europe. He could join forces with Macron on issues like workers' cooperatives, industrial democracy, you know, to, to, to be at the vanguard of, of improving workers' rights across the whole union. Um, and I just think that we're, we're probably ha- not, we're failing to make that case to him properly. But also it's very difficult because the, currently the EU is dominated by governments of the centre-right and right. And actually some really seriously nasty stuff is happening in East, uh, Eastern Europe with authoritarian governments that, you know, are turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So I do think there is a problem with selling Corbyn on the EU, which is that, you know, the you know Merkel is a centre-right leader, you know, Macron is a centrist leader, and, and who is, you know, really to to the left of them, who is a, a big figure in the EU these days, you know, um, Syriza got absolutely crushed by the Germans. And, and, and I think that's the kind of thing that will resonate with him because he's, you know, they see Yanis Varoufakis, who was a former Syriza minister, quite a lot, mm-hmm. who was one of the people who convinced him, um, Stephen Bush, my colleague, has written his column this week, you know, one of the people who convinced Corbyn to actually campaign for Remain, not to, not to try and stick his neck out for leave. But the example of what happened in Greece is still quite chilling, I think, to, to lots of left wingers. And finally, behind the scenes, how much do we attribute this speech? to pressure from uh, Keir Starmer, Chukramuna, Heidi Alexander, like how much influence are they wielding? Or, or is this, um, are his in, is, is this sort of his inner circle are quite sort of happy with this direction for, for other strategic reasons? I wonder if it's not, and maybe Ian, you would know this better than I do, but whether or not it's actually been more coordinated with the EU because they the EU is this week has really been their customs union week, right? Um, I think, you know, he's... It, it, it seems an, an enormous coincidence that his speech kind of happened at the time that this is this you know this final agreement really needs to be signed off. I think that's thought through, but I certainly put most of the, the praise on this for for Starmer really, and yes, Chukramunner and sort of you know the others that have been fighting Hardy Alexander who sort of came on the show who've really been pushing for it within Labour, and I think have managed to do it on a purely tactical basis, basically being able to say you are going to absolutely smack her around in the Commons chamber by virtue of this. This is the place you need to be at. I, I get a little bit concerned that Labour are a little bit too happy with themselves over it and that that might actually discourage Tory rebels from, from going over the fence mm. and they could end up on their face on that basis. However, despite all of our caveats and all of our concerns, we're in a much better place this week for him having made this speech mm. than we were last week without him having done it. We are approaching base camp 
of at least getting the opposition to at least sign up to the one thing on customs union. And on that alone is rather a positive sign, both in and of itself, but also because it does really tend to confirm the fact that Labour are almost certainly going to vote against that final deal when it comes back to the Commons as a motion in October. Now, that triggers a spasm of chaos, which I think, you know, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act makes quite complicated to see how that plays out in a beneficial way. Mm. But it is at least uncertainty when all we've been presented with so far is certainty towards a destination that we don't really want to go. Yeah, I, I feel better. Good. A little better. <laughs> do you? I really don't feel I better don't. at all. Because I think the thing that's been really alarming is that it's that series of speeches by the Conservatives which are intended to reboot Brexit and have left us in a much more of a muddle than we were before. But I feel I suppose, I mean I feel better about Labour's position. Okay. Mm. I feel well, like it's it's take moving. comfort where you can find it. Grandmother's footsteps. I'm in the low expectations game. I think so, that, you know. I think what Ian was saying is right though, and, and Corbyn's career has been marked by the fact that actually he's not been a, he's never been a massive domestic policy hound. You think about the mm. great things that Labour worked on, you know, even the things that we would now talk about during the Blair era and the achievements in sure start centres and minimum wage. Those were not his concerns. His concern has always been foreign policy, with the foreign bit being quite a long way away. I, I, you know what I mean? I know technically Europe is foreign yeah. policy, but you know, he's, I would say, more moved by the Chagos Islanders or Diego Garcia than he would particularly by what's happening in Germany. Um, and that's kind of continued through to now his leadership of the mm. Labour Party. What's going on with Diego Garcia? They put that up. <laughs> wow, I can't believe you don't no, know. No, this week I meant. Oh, I right. meant just like, where, where's the Diego Garcia? There's a podcast, I'm sure. It's strictly Chagos and Diego Garcia news. Meanwhile, that pesky Irish border just won't go away. It's even following us on Twitter. It's at Border Irish and it says, I'm seamless and frictionless already, thanks. Bit scared of physical infrastructure. Don't like the sea. <laughs> the first complete draft of Britain's EU exit treaty, published this week, says that Northern Ireland would remain in the customs union, but also key parts of the single market. Basically, it's that or a hard border and goodbye Good Friday agreement. This is obviously a red flag to the Brexit fundamentalists. DUP MEP Diane Dodds said this amounted to an intolerable interference in the internal affairs of the UK. The DUP have threatened to withdraw support from the government over the issue, and Boris Johnson has privately told Theresa May to prepare for a hard border, as revealed by a letter leaked to Sky News earlier this week. So it's all working out great. Naomi, you've uh, up close and personal experience of this. Yeah, um, so this reveals my age to listeners a bit, but um, I grew up in Northern Ireland and I was just shy of being able to vote in the Good Friday uh, referendum. Um, And it's what politicised me uh, and certainly made me the liberal atheist that I am today. Um, (laughs) But the the Good Friday Agreement helped to end decades of violence um, and more or less brought around the end to killings that took the lives of, you know, over three and a half thousand people. So like the EU, it was a peace project. Um, It was negotiated by the Ulster Unionist Party and the SDLP and Trimble and Hume got a Nobel Prize for that. You know, it was it was a peace initiative. Um, and both of those parties uh, were more moderate than, than Sinn Féin and DUP, who are now the two major parties in Northern Ireland. And let's not forget that the DUP under Ian Paisley never really accepted the Good Friday Agreement. You know, he turned around and walked away from the Belfast Agreement and uh, only accepted it much later when he had to work with McGuinness. Um, and Northern Ireland voted to remain. But yet, because of May's failed snap general election, she's now, you know, subsequently impotent um, to the DUP, uh, who, as I say, have, have never really supported the Good Friday Agreement and did support Leave. And they're now this tail that's wagging the whole UK dog. Um, and, and you know, this combination of the fail, failure to restore power sharing in Stormont um, and combined with uh, Sinn Féin's refusal to take their Westminster seats essentially means that this hardline unionist voice is heavily influencing not just the future of Northern Ireland but, but the whole of Brexit. Um, and I just think that the DUP mustn't be 
able to overplay their hand in all of this. And, you know, Sinn Féin have to sort of see their demands and raise them. And very interestingly, earlier this week, it was the Taoiseach, um, Leo Varadkar in Ireland, and the two main Irish opposition parties, Fianna Foyle and Labour, have both or all of them have now started to pile the pressure onto Sinn Féin to take their seats in Westminster purely to vote to save Ireland. Um, and after all, their six votes could be the balance of power in the Commons on some of these crucial votes that are coming up for Theresa May uh, on, on customs union and things like that. So, yeah, um, you know, I think it's absolutely disgraceful that so many politicians have been talking down the Good Friday Agreement. You know, most of all, Kate Hoey, I think that's completely unacceptable for her to be saying that it's failed and that we should walk away because like the EU... It is an enormously important peace project. Uh, but don't worry, because Boris Johnson suggested that the the border would be no different from even between Camden and Islington, which Ian Martin said was was the oyster card solution. Is that O apostrophe Y S T E R? Because if so, the Protestants really won't like that. <laughs> we should probably call it the salmon card or something. Flounder card. That was a quite astonishing uh, comment. I thought on Johnson's part. I mean, it's it's not like him to be glib and flippant about a serious political issue. <laughs> oh, I, give, I mean, give me strength. I just think the problem is, and, and that whole interview that he gave to the Today programme as well, it was deeply unimpressive on Syria as well. And there is this sort of belief that you can just bluster your way through stuff. I want to come back to the Sinn Féin taking their seats, though. I mean, I'm so reluctant to make any predictions because why would you in modern politics? But... I, would, I mean, you know, it's been a hundred years that they've been uh, abstention an abstentionist party. It would be an, I mean, that in terms of things you did not expect to happen after Brexit, that would be incredible. I just, I can't see it happening. But maybe I'm convinced me. Maybe I'm wrong. It'd be amazing if they just went. I think we've made our point now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a okay. hundred years. They, you know. I, I I agree. I think it's highly unlikely. But the alternative is that you've got this, you know, band of of DUP leavers that could force the return of a hard border on the island of Ireland. I mean, it's just, yeah, their time has come and, you know. I think if I were to bet on this, and I don't know why I'm saying this out loud because this is only causing pain, (laughs) storing a pain for the future, but I just think that we would end up basically, we will have to end up not regulatorily diverging from the Mm. EU. And the thing about that is, is I I mean, a brilliant solution in many, many ways. I did the um, daily politics with Tim Montgomery at times. Yeah, and... uh, (laughs) Is he in your category of people who are (laughs) adults by Brexit? His his Twitter persona has definitely taken a turn for the worst post Brexit. Mind you, you know, some of our Twitter personas were already bad before Brexit, so maybe I shouldn't <laughs> throw stones from my glass house. Um, and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, everyone's favourite genteel um, proto-extremist, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. And they were saying, well, it'd be terrible if we don't uh, leave because, you know, we'll just end up taking all this, these rules and it's not what people voted for. And I just went, I'm going to stop you there. Uh, let's go out into the street now and like find me somebody who knows what the customs union is. Find me a normal human being. But it's this obsession of not even the Tory party, a tiny bit of the Tory party. This is why I think you're right to say that actually Jeremy Corbyn has done exactly the right thing. The number of people who have strong feelings about the customs union one way or the other is minuscule. And if you put it into any terms that people would understand, look at the failure of TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade Mm. Partnership, which basically founded on the rocks of... US chicken is gross and their supply chain is gross and so what they do at the end is they dip it in chlorine and people went that sounds horrible I don't want to eat that and it was one of the things that really turned people against it and it was in Corbyn's speech wasn't it chlorinated yeah, chicken yeah chlorinated chicken is just a really great thing where people go that sounds swimming pools and chicken I don't like those two things together. thank you very much um, but the customs union staying in the custom, a customs union sorry we have to say not the customs well this is the whole thing right because it has to be a new customs union right but it's one of those things where when people say 
I want to stay in a customs union. What they mean is like the customs union. It's just we won't call it that, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm staying in a marriage. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's our marriage. Yes, okay, it's our marriage. Um, but I just think that, yeah, I think it's it's a perfect thing for them to have a dividing line on because insofar as anyone will ever have it explained to them, they'll probably go, that seems perfectly reasonable. I don't want to eat rancid, like, Trump beef. Yeah. Um, I thought today today's stuff was one of the most important moments that have taken place really in the whole Brexit process to be honest when the when the actual legal text comes out from the EU Mm. because what we're seeing is the great fantasy land unicorn impossibilities put down in a legal text and what it translates to in a legal text is you are going to have to sign up to the same regulatory system as us and you're going to have to be in the same customs union as us at least Northern Ireland if you want there to be an open border that is not really some kind of contorted EU position. That is certainly not them trying to annex bits of the UK or any of the other sort of hysterical gibberish that we've heard so far today. That is simply how trade operates. It's how it should operate merely by virtue of what the UK itself said it wanted when it went into negotiations. And it said, look, we want an open border in Ireland. It's how the EU needs to operate by virtue of protecting one of its member states from very, very severe economic damage. And it's how it needs to operate simply by virtue of how trade works. They cannot simply have an open border in one part of their territory. If they were to say, go into negotiations with the Chinese and then go, well, actually, you know what, guys, this isn't working and pull away. The Chinese would then just be able to send goods to Northern Ireland and get them into the EU tariff free that way, unless it is part of a customs union with the EU. If they were to say to the Americans, we don't want your chlorinated chicken, the Americans could then just in the future send all the chlorinated chicken to Northern Ireland and get it into the EU that way through that open border. No political entity and no country would ever operate in that way. And for the Brexiters to start saying, mate, just leave your border open after they spent the last two years going, we need to take back control of everything, is just the most outrageous nonsense that you could possibly have dreamt up. And yet, I think that this message that they're going to have of the EU are interfering in our country, the EU are trying to carve off bits of Ireland, will actually be profoundly dangerous and I think has the kind of power to take quite soft sort of Remaining people, people who have gradually been shifting towards Remain, who voted that way but are uncomfortable with what the government's been doing so far, and push them out of the way. And these few days, it'll really matter who wins that narrative story, who wins the storytelling of what is going on here. And it's up to Remainders to sort of try and win it. I don't know quite how they go about doing that, because every time we say, look, this is just how shit operates, you just have to accept this stuff, because that is how it goes, we get kind of kicked back in the face. I didn't catch the names, unfortunately, because the kids were, were talking. Um, but on the Today programme this morning, there was kind of a, a, a rather chilled Dutchman from the EU and a, a very blustery Brexiter. Um, and... There the, are only chilled Dutchmen. You've not narrowed the that down. Dutchman at was all. just was just like, "What's your answer then?" Okay, just what's your solution? And he just went, "Well, we're working on it." And he was just kind of like blathering his way through. And then he was then he accused it, which leads us on to our next topic. Uh, he said, "This is just that. This is just their sort of opening salvo." Mm. And the Dutchman went, "It's not a salvo," <laughs> you know. And it was just that that sort of like yeah, try some of this. military <laughs> rhetoric. He was just like, "We're just trying to work this out," and he was just like, "No," and everything was like a fight. But mm. this isn't this fascinating. I mean, this is something that comes up on our podcast a lot. Is that, that I, you know, I have never cared about the regulatory arrangements of Britain, right? And that was that was a happy, blessed state that I was in until you know 2016, because you had taken care of that. But for Liam Fox or you know Jacob Rees-Mogg or the European Research Group, all of these people, this has been the abiding cause of their political life. 
why have they not thought about this a little bit before? Like, <laughs> mm. this is what I find absolutely baffling. So, you you know, you, you're now getting all these statements about them, you know, about how hard it's going to be. And that great Liam Fox statement about actually it's going to be a little bit more difficult than a packet of walkers. Because apparently we measure crisps on difficulty now. <laughs> That's the thing <laughs> that is a proper metaphor. But, you know, he, he's had a long time. He's been plotting to be Tory leader for, like, the last three mm. leadership elections. Like, he might have thought this would come up at some well, point. Well, there was a Guardian long read, I think, in 2016 with, uh, like, the man who built Brexit or whatever. Daniel Hannan. The long profile of Daniel Hannan. And you just think it now should be an amendment with just like narrator. He didn't know what he was doing. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was all like this lifelong project. And now you look at him and his ilk. I don't think that's true though. I think Daniel Hannan and that group probably do know what they're doing. And I probably include Jacob Rees-Mogg in that. It's just that they cannot vocalise it out loud, which is what they want as a Singapore Ah. style economy, right? Mm, They want, they are absolutely fine. They're libertarians essentially. And what they want is more competition in services, aka the erosion of all those workers rights that we all fought for a really long time ago they want more liberalisation of trade by which they mean chlorinated chicken they want competition in the NHS which was a position that Daniel Hannan used to advocate until he realised that this was <laughs> about as popular in Britain as kind of scurvy and and so that they all of those views that they they clearly have always held and that's the ideological tradition they come from have been quietly dampened down and the most brutal commentary I've ever read on Daniel Hannan was Matthew Paris's spectator piece which said your version of Brexit could get 15% of the vote you know this very harsh free trade libertarian so you know you know the tiger that you ride you know what you're doing in terms of, of stoking up particularly anti-immigration mm. feeling mm. in order to get this over the line of a uh, 50 you know plus one percent and I think that to me is that is the problem is that some of them genuinely hadn't thought pr- about the practical solutions yes I think that's true but in terms of actually the trade-offs we'd had to make I think they're fine with those trade-offs they just unfortunately realized that they are totally unpalatable to the British electorate. Let's take a minute, actually, for Liam Fox, if we may, um, just because he did a speech this week, and I just don't feel that as a programme we've really given him enough shit overall over the last sort of nine months. His speech was part of this great... I mean, Naomi, you called it a few weeks ago, what is it, the essay writing competition of Brexit ministers, <laughs> which is basically now his turn to go up. And what does he do but... It is like a fuck. It is a six-form free traders good speech. The live no, tweeting of this was fantastic. It was way. fucking. But it's he's it. just appalling. And the thing is, also, it's not just that he's intellectually appalling. He's presentationally a complete disaster. I mean, he's sat there reading. Almost, you can almost see the sort of shaking hands as he reads it all from a sheet. Sort of thing like, come on, man, you're supposed to be a proper politician. Like, what is this stuff? Did he's come out with? It must cheer Theresa May up an enormous amount, though, because she's basically, exactly. you're saying, she has let them all have a go at riding yeah. the big bus, <laughs> and then they've all been, if anything, even worse than she was at making speeches. He must be delighted. He's, he's marginally better than she is in that he could form human words and make them come out of his mouth. And by that, by that, <laughs> by that benchmark alone, he he does sort of succeed. He spent. Uh, there was one bit where he veers off and starts going on about, oh, all the free trade benefits we've got from the EU's deal with South Korea, and you're like, Liam, you fucking <laughs> moron. Do you understand what you're saying that is a deal that we have through the eu and yet out it comes out it comes just absolute nonsense piled on nonsense piled on nonsense and at the end of all of these speeches you've got to come to the conclusion they have no plans they have no ideas they have absolutely no concept of what it is that they're doing well finally i mentioned shalvos earlier um which brings us to uh to, to world war ii and the oscars this weekend gary oldman is the favorite for best actor for his role as, I just want to say Chalvoge, uh, for his role as Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour, Oldman wears a ton of prosthetics and gives a good account of the wheezing, smoking, raging saviour of democracy, even though the movie has left critics underwhelmed. But why is Britain so fixated on Churchill, a man whose leadership in the Second World War overshadows a somewhat problematic record beforehand? Only last week, Aaron Banks' Leave.eu was again invoking our darkest hour. This time, apparently, it's the impending Brexit betrayal, and we need our rogue leader, Nigel Farage, to step forward. 
A British vineyard announced it would be selling British fizz in pint-sized bottles because that's how Winston liked to drink it. <laughs> and a couple of years ago, our foreign secretary wrote a Churchill biography. Some said it tried to show not that Boris Johnson is the new Churchill, but that Churchill was the first Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> No, is it, is it time we sort of got over our Churchill fandom? Yes, uh, but if we're not going to, then I think we should also draw upon his um, pro-Europeanism too. Look, he provided really vital leadership um, at the most desperate time when the UK was isolated. Um, but I think what a lot of these films do and a lot of this nostalgia does is to um, A, f- completely fail to recognise that the war was a common effort by not just Brits, but millions of other people all over the world. And two, it shows a really sort of shallow understanding about you know what we did after the war and how involved we were in settling peace and, and bringing Europe together. Um, the focus on Churchill also really sort of feeds this horrible sort of great man theory of history. Um, and that really makes us overlook all of the sacrifices that other people have made. Um, and, and this whole issue about collective action and, and ultimately that it was the ability of the Allied powers to coordinate um, that was the, one of the major advantages that we had over the Axis powers. So the films tell this like really dramatic story, but they don't tell us about what happened afterwards. Um, and I mean, I, I think I think I've said this before in the podcast, but our foreign policy for 500 years was about making sure that no one country in Europe was dominant. Mm. And we switched sides and we you know, backed back different people throughout that period of history. But that was always the kind of the main thrust of what we were trying to do. Because as we know, and as all of they knew, when, when it comes to trade, proximity and size really matters. So, you know, this was, this was about making sure that, that nobody was dominating so that we could all trade um, uh, and, and not be subordinated to others. Um, so, yeah, I think that Romaniacs really need to fight for, for what it means to be part of an outward looking um, uh, national identity. Where I would disagree with you is co-opting Churchill into a pro-European um, case, because the thing that's fascinating about him as a politician is he has such a long career that he has enormous amounts of um, p- political positions throughout that time. You can probably selectively quote him to kind of back up just about anything. I'm um, working on a history of feminism at the moment. I had no idea that he basically started the militant phase of the suffragette movement. Um, it was Chriswell Pankhurst and Annie Kenny in a meeting in Manchester Town Hall in 1905 that they were so annoyed by Churchill's anti-suffrage speeches that they stood up and unfurled a banner and got arrested and that's what kicked off that part of the, the movement. So he was, for a long time, he was incredibly opposed to women getting the vote and then switched and eventually lightly supported it. And I think with the Europe, there's a similar thing, right? And actually, as a politician, we talk about him being problematic, and that's because he had such a long career mm. that you can just that, that he was yeah. involved in a lot of I mean, things yeah, that happened. Uh, but but you know, there's this inconvenient truth for the Brexiteers that he was involved in things like trying to broker a joint Anglo-French citizenship in 1940 with De Gaulle. You know, he made these really powerful speeches about the crea- when uh, you know uh, uh, the creation of the European movement and things like that. And yes, I'm really glad that he's kind of remembered much more as a conservative than a liberal because of course he switched parties throughout his career as well because of awful things like Gallipoli and and the gold standards some kind of like hybrid of um, Tony Blair and Norman Lamont you know Iraq and the ERM If you only ever show Churchill at his at his best and you can't get better than you know Dunkirk and the speech it's good speech pretty good pretty good speech (laughs) and um, 
you know, there is all this other stuff, and it, and it feels like, well, yes, we should always, we should be thinking about all figures in the round. Oh, no, you're right. There's a problem with, with all history has turned into basically a kind of ledger of goodies and baddies. Like, what we do is, the way that we do history yeah. is we go through history and we go, Gandhi, goody. And you go, well, actually, he had to have this thing where he used to, like, try and sleep naked with young women to test himself. So maybe slightly problematic these mm. days. And this is part, this is what I'm writing about in my book, is that I think it's happened in feminist history, particularly, is that a search for, you know, rebel heroines or, like, the feminist saints and actually you know most people who achieve social change are either weird or awkward or you wouldn't want to spend any time with them you know they're difficult people and and Churchill was a difficult person that probably meant that actually gave him the resolve to do the things that he did in the second world war but it also is that you know you don't get one without the other and I agree with you I think the problem is as well it's about yeah imperialism is exactly the word to talk about because I think you can't talk about Brexit without feeling that some for some people it is about reasserting Britain's place in the world as you know we we are bigger than the European yeah. Union we why we let ourselves be hidebound by all these Swiss you know it's not Swiss people Swedish people or whatever when we're a proper big country uh, and I think that definitely springs from a kind of post-imperial kind of you know sadness one of the things that makes me quite comfortable with the weird origin story of the Blitz and you know sort of the, the Basically, of the Second World War for Britain. I love the way your comic book mindset. The, the, the World War Two is an origin it, story, but it is right. It was just yeah. the odd thing because, of course, the country goes back much, much further than that. But for most Brits, when they think of who they are as a country, that's kind of where it starts. The stuff before then is considered very, very alien and hard for them to grasp. And yet, that story is fundamentally not really one of winning. That story is one of holding out against much, much tougher forces that are trying to batter you into non-existence. And by that there, I think that there's a, a form of elegance or at least a lack of triumphalism that I don't think we would have if people start going into our history much further back where it's like, oh, well, you know, they stopped taking the opium, so we just had to go over there and shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> it's much, much harder to tell that story. So partly it might be cynical that that's why we go for these stories. They're less triumphalistic. They're less full of us just massacring people. Well, it, but also that makes it more pleasant for me. Well, you know, there's a reason why keep calm and carry on. Is, yeah, is, yeah. is maddeningly ubiquitous because that that is that is the Mass myth and, yeah. and 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 not untrue from all the reading i've been doing recently about how people behave during the blitz they were almost sort of you know all well found them maddeningly kind of just sort of mulish hmm. and just we're just gonna get on with stuff and he was but just I... like i don't think you're taking this seriously <laughs> enough and they're just like Mass and ground ball <laughs> But I think that, but not to, not that everything has to come back to Brexit. But I do think that is something that really. Um, Masha Gessen wrote a great piece after Trump was Donald Trump was elected about steps for de dealing with an autocracy. About you know how do you see when things have changed and democratic norms have been eroded? And I think that's really hard to do with some of the rhetoric that we've seen around Brexit as well, which is about how, how you know how to, how much do you tell if you're a boiling frock, right? That you're or is the water just still quite warm? And I think in terms of the rhetoric around things like traitors and stuff, like that, it's quite difficult to step back and think is this all just very overheated media fluff or has something is something like deeply sinister changing in our mm. our politics and i think that you're right in the same way that people in the Blitz didn't think, we're living through the Blitz, cool, blimey, this is horrible. I don't think we probably, people, I think how we feel about this period living through it is probably not how we'll feel about it living back. And I'm aware that I might be going down far too much down the apocalypse Brexit route, right? That actually it might just be a slightly crap. I mean, I would I would take that in a way. I would, I would like to be wrong and it just to be That's slightly crap. The low expectations game. Yeah. <laughs> slightly crap is, is a sort of victory. Well, you've heard it throughout the show. Uh, it's our special guest, Helen Lewis, deputy editor of The New Statesman. As well as appearing on radio TV, she co-hosts The New Statesman's excellent podcast with Stephen Bush. Helen, do you, do you tightly monitor the Apple podcast charts like we do? 
No, the ups, why the should downs. I? How, how much better than us are you? Well, we're the, we're the Blur versus Oasis of political podcasts, <laughs> but um, but we're both beating the BBC's Brexit cast, which is the Robson Whee! and Jerome of political podcasts. <laughs> so so that's okay. How the, I bet the Guardian are doing really well. The bastards. <laughs> Not, no, not. I don't, I, oh, that's sad. No, I mean, I'm, obviously, you know, I'm sure that. I didn't but, see them shortlisted for podcast of the year. Thing. <laughs> Do you know? What I mean, I just it's one of those things where it's, I just feel like I, I feel towards them like I imagine a kind of like non-league club feels towards Manchester United. You think, well, yeah, well, if we had all the players and all the money in the stadium then we could do that kind of stuff too grumble grumble but you grumble. know the BBC but you're a, you're a good you're an achievable BBC. enemy for us to have if you're our nemesis I feel like that's good we're both in bunkers you know that was not the way that this discussion was <laughs> supposed <laughs> to go <laughs> so much nemesis more like uh, healthy competition healthy... like Jacob Rees-Mogg once you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want a monopoly Open on, market. on complaining no about stand. Brexit yeah. yeah anyway I remember listening to the podcast a year ago because I'm a big fan First time, first long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> and you and Stephen used to joke about how boring Brexit was, yeah, which we know is. it isn't. <laughs> now God has punished you by forcing you to talk about it every week. Um, what's it been like to cover Brexit for the New Statesman on the on the podcast and and in the magazine? It's, I mean, I presume it's been good for sales, but is it? dispiriting exhausting on some level yeah I don't know how you do this every week without going mad if I may, if I may say we so we are mad yeah okay so you've not dodged that landmine then um, I've, I've been experiencing real Brexit burnout actually and I've, I've been I've been working part time for the last month and I've got another month doing it doing book and it's just been really good to get away because it's one of those stories some a political correspondent once described it to me as like covering the launch of a like a rocket from Cape Canaveral right and what you're seeing essentially is the three-day period where the rocket trundles slowly towards launch pad except that everyone's pretty sure the rocket is going to explode when you try and launch it mm. but you've got no way of proving that one way or another as it inches its way ever closer to the and and that's a really difficult thing to cover um you know you just the solid handholds are, are not there plus your trying to work out what's negotiating strategy you know uh, what are things are the Brexiteers in the cabinet saying that are mental because they don't understand it and what things are they saying because they want to provide some kind of air cover for our negotiating position all of that but I just can't get away from the fundamental madness of the fact you've got a prime minister and a civil service delivering a policy that they don't believe is a good idea which is just crazy. Like, I was just, I, you know, even previously we've had terrible policies before, but they have at least been people who believed in them and things that, you know, haven't, like grammar schools, which Justin Greening, who left ed- being education minister, you know, she was kind of quietly trying to sort of smother that. She wasn't feeling that she had to, you know, enthusiastically embrace it. Um, and that, you know, as a result of the election campaign, that policy has now kind of quietly died a death. But because of the referendum, I, th- I think that's the big lesson for me of the last year and a half is the disruptive effect that a referendum has. And I was previously quite into the idea of referenda. I thought the AV referendum was quite a good idea. You know, you could sort of try and settle these things. But I will never, ever, ever again back. And I don't think I would back a second referendum, actually, because I just don't think it would settle it one way or the other. I just don't think you can settle things with referendums. That's what we've learned here. And it takes up so much space, uh, obviously in Westminster and Whitehall, but also in the, in the media. Um, and you know, before I mean, and, and obviously the new, new Statesman continues to do this, and you know, the Guardian and so on. But there are all these other issues that you know, very important issues that we should be dealing with. Which things do you feel are not getting enough? airtime they're getting squeezed out by Brexit yeah well there's basically nothing in the domestic um, policy agenda that's really coming up and they've been trying to um, Jess Phillips was saying to me that they've been trying to uh, hang things on the domestic violence bill because it's like the only thing the only, only kind of bill with monetary stuff that will go through the commons in the, in, in the near future 
um, something that I'm obsessed with, prisons massively overcrowded falling apart the probation the privatization of probation has gone which was part privatization has gone horrifically badly they can't deliver the contracts um the inspector reports keep coming in saying people are living in gross inhuman conditions um and that is just you can't get anywhere near that no i mean it's hard enough to get people to cover prisons at the best of times but now just absolutely not a chance um just in terms of things, I, I think the snow is, is a really good example of this. Local authority funding cuts. You know, you have local authorities that actually can't physically are really worried about whether or not they can set a budget. You know, people are asking for council tax rises because they just are worried about that. You know, the snow makes me think of it because I'm sure there are places where there will not be enough grit because they can't actually afford to buy enough grit. Um, Polly Toomey had a phrase about the fact that the austerity was largely about devolving the axe. And that's really true. Those cuts fell really, really hard on things like adult social care. Um, and there's a famous joke from Not the Nine O'Clock News where they had a budget where they said the, the Chancellor has announced 100% tax on, what is it like, white canes, wheelchairs and diarrhoea medicine. You know, Once again, he's hitting hmm. the people who can't fight back. <laughs> and that's exactly the same problem with things like adult social care is that it affects a, a, a small number of people, but it absolutely destroys their lives if they can't get that, the care that they need for, for people in their lives. But those people are not generally people who have any means and access to the media to complain. So I, I, you know, I resent Brexit for many reasons. It's not my project. I don't believe in it. But I also resent the enormous amount of time it's taking away from the NHS funding crisis. You know, I mean, that's these are huge existential. Well, there's a solution issues. to that. Written on a yeah. <laughs> written on a red passenger vehicle. Yeah. But you wrote an uplifting piece recently called "On On Both the Left and the Right." I've never despaired more at British politicians. You said stasis reigns. Truly, this is the age of political cowardice dressed up as strategy. Um, I mean, how much of the, I mean, some of these people, they weren't impressive before Brexit. But how much do you think this is this is sort of down to Brexit? Would we would would some of these politicians be behaving more impressively, be showing more leadership, more vision without this, the kind of the division and the distraction of Brexit? We had a theory in the office that we called the punch that changed politics. And it was the punch that was thrown by Eric Joyce, then the MP for Falkirk, in the Strangers Bar. I can't remember, was it Sports and Social? One of the Parliament's bars, anyway, which led to him being disbarred as an MP, which led to the Falkirk selection round, which Unite got involved, which led to the change in the Labour leadership membership rules, which then led to Jeremy Corbyn's election, which then led to Brexit, because I think if you'd had a very ardently pro-Remain Labour leader, you might there's an argument case that you might not actually have ended up with Brexit. So that's that's one of my problems with it is that it just feels like a series of small unintended things have just ended up we've ended up in in this place. And I think that that's definitely true when you think about Theresa May's decision to invoke article 50 and then hold a general election and then lose her majority. That's what I think I think I find least impressive is the lack of political calculation that, that the Tory party made about there and what they wanted. Um, so that's one of the reasons I find it really impressive, uh, unimpressive. I think, you know, that there is a particular problem in Labour that one of Jeremy Corbyn's, I think the things that people like about Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think it's a particularly good attribute in a leader, is his loyalty to people. So he has kept people in the shadow cabinet who, as he sees, were loyal to him during the 2016 coup, or whatever you want to call it, um, who are just frankly kind of underperforming and would not be there otherwise. You've got a similar problem in the other direction in the Tory cabinet, which is there are people there who are underperforming or frankly have gone off the reservation who have been kept there because they're Brexiteers on the as I've said before, the best affirmative action scheme known to man, the Tory Brexiteer <laughs> promotion scheme, right? Is There is just no sane world in which 
Boris Johnson should still be Foreign Secretary, frankly, when he's undermining the government's negotiating position and that's being leaked or, you know, the misstep that he made over the um, woman who's detained in Iran on accusations of being a journalist. These are things that previously would have seen you, you know, hoofed out of the door, but there is now an immunity based around the fact that he's a Brexiteer and, and Theresa May needs to maintain that balance in her cabinet and on the Brexit subcommittee. Ian, you um, also cover Brexit, not just for us, but for <laughs> other things. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you've got a different sort of publication, different different sort of remit to, to Helen. What would, do you think are the challenges just for maybe in, in your corner of, of things or just for, you know, the media in general about covering this thing where sort of there's always something happening and yet nothing is happening. It's the technocratic sort of straitjacket of the whole thing, really, that it's an identity politics question wrapped up into these sort of technocratic chains. And so it's all got all of that thrust, that emotion, that colour of the identity politics aspect of it, which is really why people voted that way. But what it translates into is to a bunch of stuff about fucking country of origin checks, which is extremely tedious and doesn't seem to have any connection. I sort of feel like magazines are probably better suited, actually, for most of this, because you can... A bit more laid back. You've got a bit more time for it. There's more space, I suppose. So you're in a better position than than the TV stations and the radio stations. I mean, the BBC look like they're fucking terrified of complexity. As soon as anyone mentions any of the, the actual real mechanics that are going on, the big problem the BBC's got is that they still run a news model that is led by the papers, right? With so many ideas of paper reviews, which is their way of trying to. I guess almost buy off the right wing press, I think, by saying, well, look, we're giving you lots of promotion, you know, and so much weirdly that Google are kind of doing. Um, you know, you're on their lots. Um, but they are so, you know, the Today program, which I can't believe you listen to, Dorian. Uh, why do you hate yourself? You know, what? <laughs> is your blood pressure too low? Is that what's happened here? Um, I don't know. It's just like a sick addiction. <laughs> is, but that is, you know, that is absolutely something that reflects where the papers have been and the line that's taken by the papers, which smothers a lot. I mean, what the papers do, I think, we can talk, you know, I think there are criticisms of the MSM, which are extremely unnuanced and, and a bit knee-jerk. But one of the things that they can do is very effectively put a kind of fire blanket on certain issues. And we had um, a Gordon Brown guest at it before Brexit, in which he said, no one's talking about Northern Ireland. I don't mm. understand why no one's I talking about Northern that. Ireland. Yeah. And the one thing they can do is they can suck all the oxygen mm. out of an issue because you talk about mm. something mm. and then it doesn't get picked up. And mm. I'm sure all of you will, you know, on Twitter, if, you, if there's an issue that is not aligned to your side you'll just see that no one comes behind you no one's interested like no one follows it up and that happens on a macro version with things that don't fall precisely down the line that you know that it's so much of media is an ecosystem that depends on things kind of snowballing and that usually happens along partisan lines um but yeah i think magazines are in a better place because what we try and do is we do day-to-day analysis and the same kind of stuff that you guys do but we also try and do essays on populism as a thing or and European like I think the coverage of European politics aside from narrow Brussels stuff which places like the Times I think are doing well actually coverage of what's happening in the German coalition negotiations or what Emmanuel Macron's labour reforms actually are is that's really very difficult to get here whereas the European I think kind of the versions of like Les Réméniacs in <laughs> France would be reading, like they will probably be a lot better at reading English for a start. They're getting a much better idea about what we're thinking, what our political class is doing than we are about what you, the European political class is doing. Do you think there'd be clicks in it if you did, if you put out something, you know, for instance, on the Italian elections, you know, this weekend? Or I mean, do you think 
there actually be any interest out there for it. Well, you've published them, so what kind of feedback do you get? From yeah, we places? do. Um, Pauline Bock, who um, is our social media editor, who is French, she has written a lot both about EU citizens uh, over here and the, their rights and the problems with them. And that's had a massive response because that is a co- that is actually a community that has formed that didn't exist pre June 2016. Yeah. People now do feel their identity as a, a UK citizen, uh, an EU citizen in the UK is a thing that, you know, weirdly oppression creates communities, right? Because it pushes people together into a, into a coherent political class. Um, it's harder to get sort of straightforward European politics. Uh, certainly doesn't sell on the cover. I think that's one of the things that's slightly dispiriting. But people are interested in it. We did a long piece about Catalonia and the separatist struggles there, which actually did really well. And I, I looked in this morning and our most read piece on the website was a piece about Malta. Who knew people were mad for Malta? Um, and when we've done stuff about um, Hungary and Viktor Orban, like I was saying, some of the really worrying authoritarianism and anti-Semitism that's spreading through the political discussion in, in Hungary and, and Poland too, that stuff does very well because people know that what that's an echo of and they know that that is a very, very bad sign for politics generally, that that is creeping into and once again infecting European politics. One last thing that I'd like to touch on, you're writing this brilliant book about feminism um, and you wrote a piece before um, the uh, referendum on on feminism and Brexit and why Brexit is a feminist issue. Um, but 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 where are the women? You know, as, as you mentioned, we're going to have all of these even more savage cuts probably as a consequence yeah. of a hard Brexit. We know that they will hit women harder. Uh, they will hit, you know, poorer women very, very hard. But so why is Brexit and particularly the leave elements of Brexit still so dominated by middle-aged men because it's dominated by the Tory party which is dominated by middle-aged men because they refuse to cough to the idea of all women shortlist at any point as a solution to the immense male dominance of their party I mean that's the point and I think it's been they've the trouble is what I find I'm gonna get myself into trouble by saying this but I'm gonna say it anyway the story of my career um <laughs> the problem with what they do is is it, someone like Suella Fernandez okay mm-hmm. has been pushed forward by the European research group as being a, a face of Brexit and that in my mind has been a very cynical thing to do in that she is seen as being a more palatable face for Brexit mm-hmm. um than say Ian Duncan Smith that is not by people who think that there is any you know people who would who I think are opposed to kind of equality of opportunity really fundamentally but they know that it is no longer acceptable to send out seven white men. Um, so there is an enormous amount, for even for people who decry the equalities agenda, there has been an enormous amount of cynicism in what they do, which is why, you know, Pretty Patel was pushed forward, for example. Um, uh, UKIP always pushed forward Suzanne Evans, and, like, you think, oh, yeah, But Pretty Patel can be sacked in the way Boris Johnson can't. Well, yeah, but and then it's also because she was at DFID, which is, you know, a ministry that lots of the Brexiteers would like to just not exist, so they have no problem with that. What I mean is that, that to me, that advancement of women is not actually a feminist one. It's a purely mm-hmm. cynical image. Mm-hmm campaign and they know that those are you know the, and, and the, the Sunday shows on, on TV want to have more female guests so actually if, if you can you know train up women you'll mm. get on now I feel I can say that because I'm sure I get more TV opportunities than like you do and simply because actually they just they've got enough men mm. and you, the, the standard is that the standard is therefore lower if you're a woman mm. um, and they're always looking for them but that's one of the reasons that uh, are so few women is because particularly because of the dominance of the Tory party in the discussion and that wing frankly there's not a lot of female libertarians out there um, just that in that strain of politics mm. it, because they, find they, d- they don't believe in offsetting 
the disadvantage that women have in political life, which is their caregiving role. Mm. And therefore, if you just do it as a purely equal opportunities thing, then surprisingly enough, you know, Jacob Rees-Nogg, by his own admission, has never changed a nappy. That means that he's got a lot more time on his hands than the mother of his six children in order to kind of do extracurricular activities. That's what libertarianism means as a political ideology, women getting stiffed with unpaid care work. Sorry, you've neatly segued into my pet subject, so next, <laughs> next three hours will just be me ranting about this. There is a big problem, though, which is that um, you know some of the workers' rights stuff, particularly mm. um, that kind of stuff, is all bound up with European legislation, so we need to keep a really close watch on what gets repealed and what gets reinstituted in its place, because I know that lots of those brevetiers would very happily take away you know, maternity rights if they could, because it's a terrible burden on small businesses, you know. So come on, listeners, talk to all the women in your lives about why they need to get on board and help Romaniacs. <laughs> and just to wrap up, um, the New Statesman has a, a, at times been pretty critical of Corbyn and there was a, a comedy picket of your offices last year for your failure to support him sufficiently. Um, have the kind of, has the sort of anger over centrists abated at all? Don't come at me with centrists. You know, I spent <laughs> I, 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 I half my career being seen as like unutterably left wing. And it's really weird to have been in the last two years been kind of recast as this basically slightly to the right of Angela Merkel. <laughs> so it's, I mean, fine and fair enough. Look, I, the thing I would say about this, and it's an unpalatable thing to many people, is I am baffled by how honest journalism has come to be a, 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 a now mean pro-Corbyn journalism. The New Statesman in its previous era before I was there was too pro-Brown. Like it was used by the Brownites as a uh, as a kind of flank for them in their war with the Blairites. You know, one of the things that I think the magazine got right under the editorship of Peter Wilby, who's now a columnist, is it was very opposed to the Iraq war. It broke rank with a, the most successful Labour leader, you know, the party's ever had, to say this was an absolute epic disaster in foreign policy terms. I do not I'm not interested in doing pro-Corbyn journalism. And if that's what people want, then they need to find it somewhere else. What I want to do is... Score box. Well, that, but this is, I genuinely mean that. Those blogs are pro-Corbyn, so their take on any story is entirely influenced by what does Jeremy Corbyn think about this. Well, mine aren't. Mine are influenced by... I have a set of general principles, which I think I'm fairly open about being on the left, and I measure it against them, and whether it's Jeremy Corbyn doing it or Tony Blair doing it or Liam Fox doing it. I mean, we're talking a bit about, you know, ideas for women. If... Theresa May has done good work on domestic violence, for example, and modern slavery. Those are issues that I care about. I want to be able to say that, not merely to have to turn everything into a this is why she's terrible and Jeremy Corbyn is great. I don't understand. I mean, you must get a lot of this, Ian, like not being sufficiently pro-Corbyn is now seen as a, a journalistic failure rather than journalistic attempt at objectivity. Yeah, there's an awful lot of that. And it did feel very, very strange to be told that you're not left wing enough or that you don't care enough about sort of marginalised people and all that. And it probably stings a little harder than it does when it comes from anyone else, certainly when it comes from the right or anything like that. I was literally told that I could not call myself left wing because I'd criticised Jeremy Corbyn. But right, but <laughs> Even though I had voted for, for, for Labour, I'm a member of the Labour Party. Because I had criticised him on in, in a blog post and on Twitter, I could no longer be left wing. And that... I don't know. I feel that maybe feeling as if to me it feels like that subsided a little bit or maybe I've just tuned out. Maybe I'm so my battles are now happening on the kind of field of Brexit. Um, and re- I just cannot. I'm not sort of clashing. Therefore, uh, over, the Labour civil Corbyn. war is essentially over, and Corbyn's won. I yeah, think that's one of the things that that's, that's definitely affected it. But yeah, if you ask the same people what they don't like about the Telegraph and the Mail, they would say they're too slavishly in hock to the Tory Party. So mm. I think a lot of it's about a feeling of 
the, the, the right have got their pet, um, you know, MSM. Why don't we have one similarly? And and the trouble is, that actually, I don't think that's the right way of looking at it. It's that I would like to see more objectivity among the right wing press and more, you know, holding particular leaders to account, even if you within a consistent ideology, not that the left has to copy and do the same thing in, in, in mirror version of that. You're all yeah. very welcome to come and join me on the social liberal wing of the Liberal Democrat Party, <laughs> where you get derided by Cleggites as loony lefties all the time. So you'd love it. You'd love it. <laughs> All of which brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to our special guest Helen Lewis for the New Statesman for coming in. What's uh, what's your next big? I know you're, you're sort of you're sort of part time at mm. the moment working on the book, but um, in terms of the magazine, what's the next big thing that we're twist? doing? Uh, <laughs> we're gonna the next big event? All right, we're going to continue to publish the magazine. No, I, it's going to be a very weird year because, uh, for all we know, hopefully, God, I hope there will be no vote this year. It'll be the first time since 2013 we said that. So we're going to have to kind of. Well, I think it was like one of those Victorian families. We have to make our own entertainment this year. Hmm. So yeah, if anyone's got any suggestions of things they'd like to put in the magazine, <laughs> do write in. <laughs> we'll have a protest outside the front door. Yeah, yeah. come, come. We brought. I mean, we brought them biscuits. The protesters. We're not animals. <laughs> Please do come again. Uh, for this week's European language, here is listener Maria Brooks with a bit of German. Wir geben euch ein hervorragendes Handelsabkommen, wenn ihr versprecht, Boris Johnson nie wieder nach Deutschland zu lassen. Thanks to Ian and Amy and to Corner Shop for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, which sounded fantastic over the big speakers at Romaniacs Live. And here's the traditional roll call of the insidious conspiracy that is our Patreon backers. <laughs> From me to Alan Brisbane, uh, Giles Watson, Stephen Maynard, David Keane. Maynard Keane, very good. And uh, best of all, Jeb Supertramp. And a shout out from me to Luke Lewis, Catherine Markova, Con Machiavelli, Petri Simonon and Joshua Shearer. Finally, thanks to Gray McFadden, Daniel Benoliel, probably didn't get that right, Jocelyn Stevenson, <laughs> Philip Stout and Neil Kemp. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Studio production was by Sophie Black and the producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.